Good day and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Rivian third quarter 2022 earnings conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask the question during the session, you will need to press star one one on your telephone. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker for today. Tim Bay, you may begin. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us for Rivian's third quarter 2022 earnings call. Joining us on today's call, we have RJ Scaringe, our founder, chairman, and chief executive officer, and Claire McDonough, our chief financial officer. A copy of today's shareholder letter is available on our investor relations website. Before we begin, I would like to remind you that during the course of this conference call, our comments and responses to your questions reflect management's views as of today only and will include statements related to our business that are forward-looking statements under federal securities laws, including, without limitation, statements regarding our market opportunity, industry trends, business operations, strategy and goals, our production ramp and manufacturing capacity expansion, our proposed joint venture with Mercedes-Benz, our future products and product enhancements, including our two, and our expectations regarding vehicle deliveries. Actual results may differ materially from those contained in or implied by these forward-looking statements due to risks and uncertainties our business, which are described in our SEC filings and today's shareholder letter. During this call, we will discuss both GAAP and non-GAAP financial measures. A reconciliation of GAAP to non-GAAP financial measures is provided in today's shareholder letter. With that, I'll turn the call over to RJ, who will begin with a few opening remarks. Thanks, Tim. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Just before the call, we published our shareholder letter, which includes an overview of our progress over the recent months. I encourage you to read it for additional details around some of the items we'll cover on today's call. Having just passed the one-year anniversary of the start of production for the R1T, I want to take this opportunity to highlight the progress our team has made this past year. We launched four variants across our consumer and commercial vehicle platforms. We are awarded Motor Trend's Truck of the Year, along with other media accolades. We produced more than 15,000 vehicles as of September 30th, and we continue to ramp our production to fully utilize our normal facility. In addition, we also launched our go-to-market operations and services, which include our physical service centers and mobile service vehicles, delivery operations, fleet OS, financing, insurance, remarketing, and the Rivian Adventure Network, our in-house developed and produced network of DC fast chargers. It's been rewarding to see the excitement and enthusiasm for our first generation of products. We believe we're in a unique position during a transformational time for the auto industry. Production of our designed and developed products continues to ramp at, large, at our large-scale, vertically integrated production facility in Normal. We have significant demand visibility as evidenced by our consumer and commercial backlog. We have a strong balance sheet with $14 billion of cash that offers us the flexibility to navigate these uncertain economic times and look for capital-efficient methods to drive growth. We remain focused on ramping production in a cost-efficient manner, and we've seen improvement across our cost of goods sold, operating expenses, and capital expenditures over the past quarter. The third quarter was another record for the Rivian team. We produced over 7,300 vehicles across the R1T, R1S, and EDV product lines. Our key focus remains ramping our normal facility to achieve the targeted annual capacity. As part of this progress, we reached a key milestone recently as our second manufacturing sh shift started producing vehicles. It takes extraordinary coordination to ramp a highly vertically integrated facility of this size, 
and I'm grateful for all the hard work that's gone into it. We continue to see strong demand for our products. As of November 7th, we had over 114,000 net pre-orders and reservations for our R1 vehicles. As a reminder, these orders are from the United States and Canada only and are net of deliveries and cancellations. The third quarter was also important for our commercial business. In early September, we announced the signing of an MLU with Mercedes-Benz for a strategic partnership for commercial electric vans in Europe, the world's largest van market. We continue to deliver EDVs to Amazon and expand our Fleet OS offering. Amazon has delivered over 5 million packages with the EDVs and is now making deliveries in over 100 cities. Every two weeks, I spend a few days driving uh, the EDV as my daily driver. It's, it's a great way for me to personally experience what the drivers of these vans actually experience. You know, everything from the seating position to the unique pocket door to the overall vehicle dynamics, it, it's a really exciting package. And at stoplights or parking lots, the enthusiasm I can see firsthand from folks that are, that are seeing it for the first time or asking questions about it, it's, it's really exciting. And, and we're happy to be able to help raise the bar for electrifying logistics. As we continue to look for opportunities to scale our platforms, production, and technologies in capital-efficient ways, we're strategically investing in our in-house technologies, which will enable differentiated product performance and capabilities while also delivering structural cost advantages. Our in-house software capabilities allow us to be agile and provide customers with an improved experience. On the hardware side, we're excited to ramp production of our fully in-house drive unit. The Enduro production lines are coming to life now. It's great to see not only the vertically integrated motor, but also the design of our manufacturing lines. In early 2023, we plan to introduce the Enduro motor and our first LFP battery pack into the commercial van line in normal. These changes will enable optimized performance at a significantly lower cost. It's imperative that we get the introduction of these new technologies right, so we've allocated meaningful time to quality loops and process checks in the first quarter. We are excited about the progress our teams are making across future vehicles and technologies as well as improving the performance and cost of our current offerings. While we haven't shown any of our future products yet, I couldn't be more excited about the work happening on our next platform. The smaller size of this platform is enabling some wonderfully unique products, and we are looking forward to be able to show these to the world. I want to thank our dedicated team members, suppliers, and importantly, our customers and communities for the tremendous support you continue to show us. With that, I'll pass the call over to Claire. Thanks, RJ. I want to echo your excitement around the third quarter results and the progress the team is making. During the third quarter, we produced over 7,300 vehicles and delivered nearly 6,600 vehicles, which was the primary driver of the $536 million of revenue we generated. We recorded negative gross profit of $917 million in the third quarter. We continue to be impacted by the high fixed cost structure associated with running high volume production lines at low volumes while we ramp. We recorded a $696 million accounting adjustment in the third quarter related to LCNRV. As discussed on prior calls, the LCNRV adjustment writes down the value of certain inventory to the amount we anticipate receiving upon vehicle sale after considering the future costs necessary to ready the inventory for sale. The increase in our LCNRV charge represents the vast majority of the increase in cost of goods sold as compared to the second quarter of 2022. The increase in LCNRV compared to the second quarter is primarily due to an increase in overall inventory and firm purchase commitment values ahead of the start of our second manufacturing shift. In addition, 
similar to prior quarters, gross profit for the quarter was also impacted by the inflation of our raw materials as well as supply chain challenges, which caused the need for expedited shipping. Operating expenses grew by an approximate $160 million as compared to the same quarter last year. The primary driver of this increase is stock-based compensation expense, which we did not recognize prior to our November 2021 IPO. When looking at our operating expense this past quarter versus the second quarter of 2022, we saw a nearly $150 million decrease. Our Q3 operating expenses reflect our ongoing prioritization of investment in our core in vehicle technologies and customer experience, while continuing to drive additional focus and cost optimization across the business. We continue to focus on deploying capital in the most efficient way and ensuring that every dollar spent helps us towards our long-term financial targets, which in turn helps accelerate the impact we can deliver. Our adjusted EBITDA for the third quarter was negative $1.3 billion, which is flat to the second quarter of 2022. We ended the third quarter with about $14 billion of cash on hand. We continue to monitor the economic environment and believe we have a high level of flexibility regarding the cadence of our growth investments. We remain confident in our ability to fund operations with cash on hand through 2025, excluding the impact of our investment in the contemplated joint venture with Mercedes-Benz. We continue to work with the State of Georgia and the Joint Development Authority on our second domestic production facility. We are adjusting the timeline for launching the R2 platform and expect it will launch in 2026. We expect the R2 platform will unlock a massive global market expansion opportunity for Rivian and are excited about the development work that's underway. We are also reaffirming our 2022 full-year guidance of 25,000 total vehicles produced. The supply chain continues to be our largest source of uncertainty as we continue to ramp production. We've experienced five days of production downtime in October and November due to a lack of supply of a key component, which limited our quarter-to-date production. In the fourth quarter of 2022, we expect the in-transit time from rail shipments, coupled with an increase in volumes from the ramp of our second shift towards the end of the quarter, will cause a significant discrepancy between production and deliveries. In addition, we're reaffirming our 2022 adjusted EBITDA guidance of negative $5.45 billion. We're lowering our capital expenditure guidance to $1.75 billion due to our streamlined product roadmap and the shift of certain capital expenditures to 2023. As RJ mentioned, we have over 114,000 net R1 pre-orders as of November 7th. As we ramp our production and deliveries, we believe pre-orders will become an increasingly less important measure of our fundamental progress as a business. Going forward, we no longer plan to provide an updated pre-order number during our quarterly earnings calls. In closing, I want to reiterate our confidence in our long-term financial targets. We see a clear path to our approximately 25% gross margin target, high teams EBITDA target, and approximately 10% free cash flow margin target. With that, let me turn the call back to the operator to open the line for Q&A. Thank you. 
As a reminder to ask the question, you will need to press star 11 on your telephone. That's star 11 to ask the question. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Our first question comes from the line of John Murphy with Bank of America. Your line is open. Um, good afternoon, guys. Um, thanks for all the, the info. Um, just a, a couple of quick ones. Um, you, the, that, that announcement that you're not going to pr provide um, the pre-orders anymore, I, I'm just curious what the, the motivation is, is for that. Are we getting to a point where the pre-orders are getting so robust or long um, that ebbs and flows in those relative to production might not actually be that informative? I mean, what, what's kind of the driving factor in that change in communication? Uh, thanks, John. This is Claire. As it pertains to the pre-orders, our, our sentiment was more so that we're, you know, one year post our, our start of production as an organization, we're starting to really ramp up our production and the deliveries associated with our R1 platform. Uh, so, so don't feel like it's really a, a meaningful metric for us to continue to provide overall to the market. Um, obviously, given the 114,000 uh, unit backlog that we currently have that extends us into 2024 as well, it's a, it's a robust backlog uh, of, of demand that we have, you know, for our vehicles. And uh, this is, is going to be, you know, consistent with, with what you'll see from us on a go-forward basis as it pertains to additional uh, new product launches as well. Okay, that's helpful. And then, RJ, on, on the Mercedes um, your JV, I just wonder if you give us an update there. I mean, I think a, a skeptic could say, hey, listen, you know, you, you would have been able to enter and be successful in the European market ultimately on your own over time, just given your, your product. But an optimist might say, hey, listen, that opens up that market that much faster and provides, you know, more robust growth, um, you know, sooner. Um, you're just curious if you can kind of maybe, you know, couch the, the direction there on optim optimist versus skeptic and any, uh, any other updates you might be able to give us there. Sure, John. Um, yeah, Mercedes is, uh, in terms of a partner and, and someone to be looking at, uh, how do we accelerate electrification you know, faster? Uh, there's very much aligned mentality, aligned mentality around the need to electrify, aligned mentality on uh, how we think about products and the position of products and the execution of products. So it's a, it's a relationship and a partnership that we're working towards that we think can allow both sides to, to accomplish more together. Uh, ultimately, uh, as we think about this and as we look at this market, uh, it is a it is an important uh, and large space for the commercial van space in Europe, and uh, we felt we felt Mercedes was a great partner to be looking at this with. Okay, and then if I could just sneak one more, and the, the the delta in in deliveries versus production, Claire, will that continue to expand over time, or are we kind of looking at sort of a a one-time gap opening up here in, in the fourth quarter. I'm just trying to gauge the revenue recognition versus the production so we can think about that for our models go forward. The, the Q4 gap will be exacerbated here in particular because we have the second shift that's, that's coming online and, and really ramping from a production perspective that back weights uh, the volumes from a production perspective uh, in the second half of, of the quarter. And then uh, that coupled obviously with, with the, the shift that we've had to rail uh, and then the holiday period where customers are a little bit harder to, to find in that last week of December, um, that will be a, a driver of that core shift for us. Obviously, the, what we don't deliver in Q4 rolls into the, the upcoming quarter. So you start to normalize over time as we ramp uh, closer to the installed capacity within the plant in normal. So the gap should, you know, narrow on a, a percent basis on a go forward basis. 
That's very helpful. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Please stand by for our next question. Our next question comes from the line of Adam Jonas with Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Hey, everybody. Um, so my, my first question, Claire, is if I do the calculation quarter on quarter, sequentially, from 2Q to 3Q, your revenue increased $172 bucks, and your gross uh, loss, if you will, improved by 182 million if you exclude LCNRV, okay, which um, which is substantial, uh, more, more substantial this quarter than the last quarter. So, on, on my math, your improvement in gross profit X LCNRV was actually greater than your change of revenue. Now, there may be some stuff going on sequentially, and maybe there was some really unusual other knocks on gross profit la uh, last quarter, but I just want to kind of make sure my math is right and to see um, if there was what you could highlight sequentially that got a lot better underlying, excluding the LCNRV, to, to draw that improvement of gross profit that actually exceeded the, the change in revenue. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Adam. So unpacking the, the question first about LCNRV itself, it's important to understand there, there are different components. So the, the way the, the, your calculation, which is in, you know, entirely excluding it, um, is is not necessarily the the way that I would direct you to look at it. The thing that you you may want to look at instead is really looking uh, in particular at the change in increase in LCNRV uh, versus the complete exclusion of it. So the the way to think about it is LCNRV is really accelerating the recognition of losses uh, as we take in right, raw materials and have our our firm uh, commitments, which we're then grossing up to say what is the cost for us to turn. Uh, these materials into that end state vehicle themselves. And so as it pertains to, to the quarter, we get both, you know, the, the benefit of a reduction in of bill of materials and conversion costs associated with, uh, you know, sort of the baselining of inventory levels if, if inventory were held constant within those two quarters. And so that's why we look to that increase um, as, as you look at that calculation in particular. And so if, if you're looking uh, based off of, of your own metrics, there, right, it's more of an 11% increase in, in that cost of goods sold uh, on, a, on a comparable basis versus a 47% increase in deliveries in aggregate. So we've, we've made meaningful progress uh, to, to sort of close the loop on, on that front, uh, but wanted to just direct you to some of those nuances. Okay, I appreciate that. Uh, thanks. And just as a follow-up on, on reservations, can you tell us where give us an update on where you're getting your customers from what they're um what they currently drive and then same thing for your deliveries just to kind of get a sense how many are coming from tesla or trucker yeah. suv owners uh any any other color there would be great thanks sure adam it, you know, one of the things we we targeted in developing the products you know in thinking about r1t and r1s these are really flagship products that uh, introduce the brand, really open the brand umbrella for us to, over time, add additional products. And because of that, we wanted them to be pulling, the, the target state, I should say, was to be pulling customers from a broad spectrum of vehicle formats and form factors, as well as brands. And sitting here today, we now have the actuals to look at how we did relative to target state. And we're, we're really pleased that we do have a really diverse set of customers. So certainly customers are coming out of um, you know, some customers are coming out of Tesla's 
but but really there's no single brand that represents uh, a significant percentage of our overall demand. But I would want to add a couple of really important metrics, the, the first of which is the vast majority of our customers, uh, you know, close to close to 90% uh, do not currently own an EV, meaning uh, most of our customers are new EV customers, which is really important from a mission point of view because it means the brand, the products we've created, you know, it's helping, we're helping to create new EV customers. We're driving that transition. And the second uh, is the number of customers that uh, are, you know, buying a, an R1T that haven't owned a pickup before. Uh, that's a you know, well over a majority of the customers haven't owned a pickup before and they're, they're being introduced to it through a very different uh, type of pickup, of course, uh, something that's very lifestyle focused. Uh, and in a similar sense, um, the R1S, it's, it's in many cases, folks are moving into it uh, as, a, as a three-row SUV, is something they've aspired to, but haven't been able to make that jump before. In many cases, because of, of desires around efficiency and, and, and what we can deliver in, in a full-size you know, three-row SUV with something that's great on-road and off-road, uh, it's really pulling in a broad spectrum of customers. Thanks, RJ. Please stand by for our next question. Our next question comes from the line of Joseph Spat with RBC. Your line is open. Uh, thanks so thanks so much, everyone. Um, Claire, I, I, I want to go back to, to Adam's question because I, I was sort of um, pulling on a similar thread here, and I'm trying to sort of update real time for what you just said. Um, so if I if I just look at auto cogs divided by deliveries in the second quarter, um, no, no adjustments, and then I do the same thing in the third quarter, but adjust for the increase in the inventory adjustment as you just suggested, it still seems like that. Cogs per unit, while still obviously above what you're selling the vehicle for, did improve like over 30%. So, can you just help us understand? Like, is that not right? Like, is there something with the accounting that does not allow you to do that calculation? No, that that's absolutely right. As as I had mentioned, right, as you factor, you know, the sort of apples to apples comparison of of the way that you're looking at it, Joe, uh, you would see a you know 33% uh, plus improvement on a quarter sequential oh. basis. Okay, maybe I misheard. I thought I, I thought I heard 11. Okay. Um so the and, and the is cost that dollars is 11% growth of dollars. Okay. But that okay. was okay. off of right, the fact that we're also increasing 47% on a delivery basis. So you're really netting the two of those. Okay. And so that's that's sort of um the leverage you're seeing in the plant or is there anything with mix between, you know, um R1s and and the vans in the quarter that 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 impact is that? But the, the biggest driver that we've seen on a quarter sequential basis is just um, some of the, the cost efficiency that we're driving within the plant, uh, us also moving beyond some of the startup-related uh, costs as well. Uh, that's a key enabler for us, as, as we've seen, and, and continue to moderate down uh, that cost of goods sold per vehicle. The other thing, just to jump in here, Joe, that, that we have is we're, we're, we've launched multiple vehicles in parallel. So the the startup costs that Claire referred to, we were seeing all of those stacked up on top of each other, four different vehicles, you know, launching and ramping, you know, largely uh, at the same time. Okay. Um, th thanks for that. Um, and RJ, I guess this is the second question. 
you know, a couple of quarters ago, you talked about the, you know, the revised plan, some some changes to, to CapEx timing, et cetera. I'm just wondering, in, in light of IRA, and, and can appreciate you're still probably evaluating that, but, um, like, does that cause you to reevaluate the plans again and maybe accelerating or reaccelerating some of that, that in-house cell development? Because, you know, I think that was one of the things that maybe had a sort of slight push out, but the return profile on that investment seems to be, you know, greatly accelerated versus um, what you were thinking at, at the time. And it obviously also then directly impacts the financials of, of the rest of your business. So just wanted to get your, your thoughts on, on, um, on that. Yeah. The, I mean, there's, as you know, there's still some moving pieces with IRA, but um, you know, we think this is a really um, powerful step and an important step by, by the U S government to, really both create um, strong tailwinds, not only for electrification, but also for the build out of a domestic supply base around battery cells. And so this is, you know, we couldn't be more excited about this. And, and um, it's certainly driving shifts in how we think about uh, the overall battery supply chain. And it's not just the cells, it's also the, the core materials that go into the cells, um, you know, lithium hydroxide, lithium carbonate, some of the key precursor materials are, are areas we're spending a lot of time focusing on and, and not only making sure we have security supply, uh, you know, as we think out through the end of the decade, but making sure that that, that supply uh, qualifies for uh, all the, you know, all the benefits associated with the IRA bill. Now, at the cell level, uh, it's particularly important for us as we think about our two platform vehicles, this is something that has long been the plan uh, to have domestically produced cells that would go into the vehicle. This just puts uh, greater emphasis and importance on, on achieving that and achieving that uh, as quickly as possible. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Please stand by for our next question. Our next question comes from the line of Rod Lash with Wolf Research. Your line is open. Hi, everybody. Um, you mentioned, um, again, that, that um, you have the funding through late 2025 with cash on hand, excluding this, this JV plan, and, and just wanted to confirm what that means. So by late 2025, you will have ramped up normal and presumably funded most of Georgia assembly. I just wanted to make sure that that's correct, and you didn't mention um, anything about anything new at least about vertical integration into batteries or cathode active material is that is that part of your your funding plan just you know, to the extent that it's important particularly for the r2 thanks rod as we as we've talked about in the past right we remain confident in our you know cash on hand through 2025 and um as as we've also spoken about we will opportunistically evaluate right opportunities for us to invest in you know high growth uh, high return uh, options for for Rivian on a go forward basis, and as as you heard from RJ's you know last comments there around a lot of the work that that our team is doing across the board as it pertains to uh, securing uh, cell raw materials and the the R and D and, and build out and capabilities that we have in house here. Uh, those are all things that we're currently uh, evaluating and, and working on as an organization as as well. And the embedded guidance that we do have, you know, does uh, certainly consider uh, some, some meaningful investments in that cell roadmap uh, as, as we sit here today and, and look out uh, at the, the building blocks uh, for that, you know, future state opportunity. 
uh, what what the the guidance doesn't include today is really uh, much more of the large scale manufacturing build out of uh, our cells, which would follow obviously uh, the development and build out of of our R2 platform as we've spoken about in the past. Uh, so so those are our core. Uh, items that I just wanted to call out as you think about the, the building blocks and, and roadmap to that cash on hand through 2025. Okay, all right, that, that's helpful. Um, is it possible that that can change prior to um, prior to the ramp of of the R2, or is that something that just um, it takes a longer time to to kind of get that uh, pulled together? So Rod, as, as Claire said, uh, a lot of what's already built into our plan is the the development and pilot, the the funding for all the development and pilot activities associated with our domestic cells, um, as well as building out some of the the raw material cathode active uh, material supply chain. Um, but above and beyond that, as we think about what the future lines look like. Part of that planning exercise is to is to create opportunities for us to take a decision with enough time in advance uh, to have impact in that you know twenty you know twenty twenty six and beyond timeframe. Uh, so those are decisions we'll take, and and we look at them through the lens of uh, you know recognizing the need to raise capital for things that we believe have very strong return profiles. Uh, building uh, domestic battery cells is one of those. Certainly, I, I'd also say that. Um, this is something that we, we view as a, as a must-have over time. So it's just a question of of how quickly those activities ramp up in terms of in terms of production Thanks. capacity. Thanks for that. And just lastly, you're going to be producing over 10,000 vehicles in the fourth quarter, and I presume that that benefits to some extent, but not fully from the second shift. And you're still constrained by supply chain. Can you just give us any color you might have on? What the uh, where where you are in the S curve now? What what the trajectory might look like from here? Just because there are obviously there there are are, are people who are reporting some push out for the uh, the R1S vehicles. So uh, wondering if that has any implications for um, for what the ramp looks like. Yeah, the the second shift is now uh, up and running. Uh, we're building vehicles on it. Those vehicles are being delivered to customers, which is exciting. You know, and, and ramping a second shift, of course, it's it's additional team, it's additional, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of additional hours every week of, of of time building vehicles, but it does have a ramp curve associated with it. And now while the, the ramp curve is much faster than what we went through on the first shift as we brought the line up and brought the plant up, uh, it's not as if it starts immediately at, at 100% output. So we're, we're going through that ramp now, it is going well, um, as, as you called out in your question. We're, we're very much cognizant of the limitations of supply chain. And, and that was, as you recall, uh, we talked about this in the last call, that was actually what drove the timing of the second shift coming online, uh, was we wanted to ensure before we brought on you know, a, a large group of additional uh, team members, make sure that we would have the parts uh, to build the vehicles. So as we stand here today, that, that is ramping, it's going well. Um, the, the first shift continues uh, to make improvements, as Claire referenced before. We're very much focused not just on the ramp, but also on on operational efficiencies and cost efficiencies, many of which come, um, you know, implicitly just through achieving higher output of the plant and, and you know, leveraging more of our fixed costs more efficiently across more, more volume. 
Um, but but um, but we're very much uh, focused on on fully ramping the second shift and and going into 2023 strong. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Please stand by for our next question. Our next question comes from the line of Charles Codicott with Redburn. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, my first one, um, on the R2 um, and the delay um, to 2026 um, from 2025 previously, can you talk a bit about what's changed there and, and maybe also how this changes, uh, if at all, your investment plans um, for the period, period up to 2025? Uh, sure, Charles. This, this doesn't represent a, a material change in the product by any means. This is really reflective of um, making sure that the production site is prepared. We have the appropriate amount of time to go through uh, the ramp-up phase, uh, leveraging a lot of lessons learned as we've gone through the ramp of the R1P, the R1S, the EDB 700, and the EDB 500 over the last 12 months. Uh, so those, those ramps have informed you know, our thinking on making sure that we uh, we have as, as close to a flawless ramp as possible with R2. Um, now, in terms of investment dollars, um, we're you know one of the things Claire and I spend a lot of time with with our with the teams on is is working very hard to to push off um, payments on some of the capex as much as we can. But ultimately, some of these things require us to spend over the course of next year and of course into into 2024 as well. Got it. Thank you. And then um, on, on production. Um, so I think to meet your your 25,000 targets, you need to average about 850 units a week in, in the final quarter. Can I ask if you've exceeded that rate in any of the weeks so far in or that, that a missing um, component may have impacted production so far? And then maybe along the lines of a prior question, you know, thinking into next year, um, you know, should we think that you know quarter-on-quarter quarter growth is kind of linear through next year, or will there be some seasonality to it? The you know the, the overall you know the way to think about the growth as we look at this um, both week over week, quarter over quarter is is it's a symphony of not just what we're doing in our plant, but also our supply chain, as you referenced, and you know looking into 2023. Uh, we do see healthy growth quarter over quarter. Uh, we do have some planned downtime uh, at the end of the year uh, as we make some line improvements and capacity increases across the plant. This is the end of 2023. We've talked about this before. Um, and then in the first quarter of this coming year, um, and Ref Claire and I both referenced this earlier, we are uh, integrating our Enduro Drive unit and our LFP pack into the EDV platform. And so that's new battery pack, new drive unit, and of course, with that, a host of, of related changes. So that introduction uh, of, of, of a new propulsion platform, which, which provides considerable cost improvement, uh, which we're really excited about, uh, that will take some time. And we've, we've built into the plan for next year, really the, the appropriate uh, time to go through the quality loops and training to make sure that it's it's a it's a real it's a seamless launch. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. Please stand by for our next question. 
our next question comes from the line of George Giannakis with Canaccord. Your line is open. Hey, uh, good afternoon, and thanks for taking my question. Uh, just quickly, uh, you recently had a recall, and I'm curious if you could share your thoughts on how your service department performed and how you see those facilities and personnel ramping over the next 12 months. Thanks. Thanks, George. So, just as a point of background, we had a recall uh, for a, a torque fastener uh, in uh, one of our suspension components, and it called for a, a inspection and, and tightening, which the, the operation takes a, a couple of minutes on, on a vehicle. And this was a really remarkable opportunity for us to demonstrate the, the benefit and the value of, of a direct service network. Uh, so we today have completed uh, that operation on 83% of our fleet uh, with a, about 10% line of sight to another 10% that's currently scheduled. So the speed at which we were able to very rapidly address this across the entire fleet and to do it you know, moments after the decision was made to, to, to do this voluntary recall, to have our service leadership immediately working on deploying this and you know within hours uh, provided you know performing these first uh, you know first inspections and operations and then as you just heard me say within weeks uh, to have uh, now over 83 percent of the vehicles complete is really uh, something we're proud of and and our customers saw that as well uh, and the ease at which uh, the process the, the process was for customers was was great uh, where we could go to their homes where we could go to their places of business in some cases, they would come into service locations, but we tried to make it as seamless as possible. And and ultimately, um, I think the the transparency in which we handled the situation uh, was appreciated by our customers. Uh, thanks. And just if I could ask one more, you know, there have uh, been some recent uh, high-profile missteps in autonomy, uh, and uh, one of your competitors stated that it may not be critical for them to develop that technology in-house. I'm just curious as whether your view has been updated on that and, and whether you think it's critical to have uh, your autonomous operating developed in-house. Thank you. Yeah, the, there's a, you know, within the autonomous space, there's a broad spectrum of, of ways to approach it. And I'd, I'd say to oversimplify, you have very hardware-heavy systems where a vehicle will have $100,000-plus worth of sensor set and compute. And then you have more hardware-constrained systems that are designed to be deployed on, on vehicles that are purchased by customers where you have thousands of dollars of sensing and compute. And um, our approach is, is to focus on the latter, where we're developing uh, an in-house uh, autonomous platform uh, that will grow in capability, but using uh, a more constrained set of sensors. Uh, in our case, a very camera-heavy and radar-heavy uh, platform. And so this is something that we do believe is really important uh, as we talk about, you know, not just um, you know highway assist features, but growing above you know above and beyond what we see today in the level two space. And this takes time, uh, but it but it certainly benefits from having a very large deployed fleet uh, with vehicles that are driving uh, many you know many millions of miles. Uh, as of today, our vehicles have driven over 92 and a half million miles. Uh, which is great, but all those miles, uh, you know, contribute to, to great learning opportunities to build and grow this platform. Thank you. Thank you. Please stand by for our next question. Our next question comes from the line of Emmanuel Rosner with Ditcher Bank. Your line is open. Oh, thank you very much. Um, 
first, um, quick question around um, you know, how do you think about some of the both units and company economics uh, going forward. So I guess in the quarter, um, you've had quite a bit of a improvement in the cash R&D and SG&A type of uh, uh, spending. Uh, do you view these as a, a new run rate uh, that is sustainable or, you know, especially as the volume increases or how, how should we think about it? And then at the um, unit level, uh, obviously nice to see the improvement in the I guess the gross uh, losses. What what would be sort of like the um, run rate, production rate, uh, or cadence that uh, you need to achieve to sort of essentially you know shrink these losses and and bring that uh, more into a positive territory as we look ahead. Uh, thanks, Emmanuel. Yeah, you know, first off, as you noted, we're really encouraged with the progress that we've made to prudently manage our, our operating expenses across the board, and, and you're seeing that. Uh, now through the performance in our, in our Q3 OPEX itself. As it pertains to um, more so of the, the baseline, uh, our expectation is from an R&D perspective that those R&D expenses will increase in Q4 relative to the level of, of spend in Q3. And that's largely the result of a lot of the uh, development work that we're, is underway for the introduction of our LFP packed uh, and enduro drive unit in the commercial van program itself. So there's a lot of uh, development builds that are happening in the in the backdrop uh, that will contribute to that overall increase in R&D that, that we expect to see uh, in Q4, uh, but we do expect to continue to uh, manage our, our OPEX uh, spend uh, in aggregate as we're driving a lot of uh, capital efficiency, while at the same time we're investing heavily in the customer experience. Uh, so on a you know ongoing basis, we're continuing to open up additional you know, service centers and our charging network, things of, of that nature, uh, which contributes to that overall SG&A balance for us, uh, but also driving uh, incredible efficiency across uh, every dimension in our control as, as we're scaling the business on a go-forward basis as well. And then to, to answer the, the second question you had on uh, unit economics and what that looks like on a go-forward basis. Uh, I think one of the, the pieces that's most important to first understand is today, as you look at our cost of goods sold, the majority of, of that, you know, COGS per unit is really fixed costs uh, within the business. And so the, the, the biggest lever we have is really uh, focused on the, our ramp from a production perspective. So maybe one thing that I think would be helpful is, is really providing you guidance as it pertains to uh, the core inputs and drivers as we take our, our gross margins from you know, current state uh, to the path to positive unit economics in, in 2024. And as we've talked about in the past, we expect to see a, a material a step change in, in gross margin uh, in that walk from you know, current state to that 2024 timeframe. And the, the biggest lever, uh, not surprisingly, is really that fixed cost leverage as well as our opportunity to move beyond uh, some of the startup uh, related costs that you heard uh, RJ and myself talk a, a bit about uh, that we've already seen from a progress perspective, uh, Q, you know, Q3 versus Q2. That reflects about two-thirds of the margin walk. So just wanted to, to make sure that you had a sense for just the magnitude of, of how important you know, ramp is from an overall uh, unit economic perspective. The second you know, key driver for us is, is associated with uh, pricing. Uh, we as we've talked about in, in the past, with the post-March 1st uh, pre configured pre-orders that we have, 
uh, in our order book reflect a, a $93,000 uh, average ASP. And we've got a, a lot of really exciting next generation technologies that will be coming into the fold as well uh, that allows us to, to believe that that you know, ASP could even you know, drive meaningfully higher on a go forward basis as well. Uh, so that's the, the second core lever uh, in that uh, economic walk. And then finally, uh, last but certainly not uh, least is, is really all of the, the core focus and work that we're doing right now around uh, the reduction of our bill of materials. So importantly, uh, the engineering and design changes and the roadmap we have in place uh, to drive meaningful uh, cost savings within, within that bill of materials over the next couple of years. And then finally, all of the, the work that our uh, procurement teams are, are doing around uh, commercial cost down opportunities um, as we continue to scale the business and importantly work hand in hand with our supply chain partners uh, and as Rivian continues to, to grow out its own manufacturing capacity uh, and drive better unit economics for the business. Oh, that's uh, incredibly detailed and helpful. Can I, can I just ask a quick clarification on this and then I have a question on free cash flow. But um, the, the fact that you're, I guess, basing this uh, targets and walk on, on 2024, does that correspond or match with a specific sort of like unit number where you think that the economics essentially work or the volume is at the right place? So, uh, I guess what you know, um, you know what 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 happens in in between. I guess. Sure, well, we'll continue to see ongoing uh, performance and improvement as as we scale, especially given the magnitude of of how important ramp is across the board. And so, it, the the important piece here is that in 2024, you see each of these key levers really in place as it pertains to. Uh, production ramp as it pertains to uh, Rivian moving to those post-March 1st pre-order base, uh, and importantly, as you think about the composition of a lot of the uh, engineering design changes that we have from a, a roadmap perspective that all come together to drive that meaningful step change in gross profit. Okay, that, that's clear. Um, and then on the free cash flow side, so with um, some of the efficiencies in CapEx this year, but also some of its um, being, I think, timing into next year. How should we think about, you know, CapEx going forward? I think your your previous view was maybe low, low $2 billion, you know, year in, year out. You know, should uh, 2023 be ahead of this as a result of some of these movements? We, we still expect that, you know, CapEx should be in that low $2 billion uh, area as well, even despite the fact that there will be, you know, some push of, of CapEx spend from 2022 to 2023. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Please stand by for our next question. Our next question comes from the line of Colin Langang with Wells Fargo. Your line is open. Oh, thanks for taking my questions. Um, IRA was pretty new after the when you were last reported. Just trying to get your your latest thoughts. You mentioned LFP, um, and that's sort of hitting early next year. There's a little uncertainty on how that might impact LFP since so much is sort of from Chinese suppliers and the rules are pretty tough there. Do you still think LFP makes sense um, longer term? And also on the commercial credit side, I mean, how does that work with some of your customers? Do, are they going to capture most of the credit benefit or are you able to kind of get some of that back uh, to your margin? With regards to LFP, um, 
this is a cell, just to speak to it broadly, as a chemistry, it works really well in vehicles that require high cycle life. Uh, so vehicles that see lots of charge discharge cycles um, relative to a high nickel cell. And so commercial applications are, are really a perfect application from a cycle life point of view. Um, further, the, the lower volumetric energy density associated with an LFP cell uh, fits nicely into a vehicle that's physically large because you have the space to fit the pack uh, to, you know, to achieve enough energy storage, uh, but, but to do it in a, in a slightly larger space. So we're, we're quite bullish on LFP. Um, and interestingly, with regards to IRA, uh, there's not uh, as stringent of requirements for commercial applications of source of cell. And so this is, this is really important. So the, the, the $7,500 credit uh, for low GVW commercial vehicles, low gross vehicle weight commercial vehicles, uh, stands regardless of source of cell. Uh, and as, as we talked about in the last call, uh, the size of those incentives grow as you move into higher gross vehicle weight classes. Um, now, the, the second thing I'd point out is we also do believe that the, the supply chain will evolve. The, the inherent benefits I, I you know, referenced at a high level of an LFP chemistry for high cycle life applications are real. Uh, they're, they're, they're meaningful advantages. And so we see a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunity to make sure there's a, a domestic supply chain for both the production of LFP cells, but also for uh, the cathode active material, and as well as some of some of the other precursor materials. Uh, above and beyond that, of course, by the nature of an LFP cell, you, you remove nickel and you remove cobalt. Uh, so, from a an IRA compliance point of view, it's actually an easier chemistry to achieve compliance on, notwithstanding the fact that there's not, as you already pointed out, LFP supply chains for building the cells in the U.S. today. But certainly, from a from a raw material supply point of view, it is an easier cell uh, long term to to maintain that compliance. And, and on the commercial credits, I mean, do do you think you, your customers will get that benefit? Because I'm not sure some of the past think I feel like there might have been cost plus arrangements for some of the the vehicles. Yeah, we believe the uh, you know our customers and specifically our, our large commercial customer that we're, we're launching our commercial business with will achieve some of those credits. There's also credits that are. Uh, manufacturer facing with IRA. So we're very cognizant of, of managing both sides of those credits, both the consumer or the customer facing as well as the, the manufacturer facing. Got it. And just last question on the joint venture with Mercedes, how does the, the production split work? Is there a fixed amount? Because uh, I mean, is there any concern? Because Mercedes obviously has an established footprint there. So, you know, is it just sort of you each have an allocation of production, or if there's demand, you could take over most of the production. How does that sort of work in the agreement? You know, at this point, we're still working through a lot of the, the specifics of our agreement. Um, and we've signed and announced the, an MOU uh, around this joint venture, but there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of defining uh, exactly how it will work. Okay. All right. Thanks for taking my question. Thank you. Please stand by for our next question. Our final question comes from the line of Ryan Brinkman with J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Hi. Great first. 
Uh, thanks for taking my questions. Uh, you know, maybe just a couple around the, the planned increase in production here in 4Q. I think squeezing from your reiterated uh, full-year outlook, it implies about a 45% sequential growth on top of 3Qs, I think 67% improvement. So, you know, firstly, uh, you mentioned being short a specific component in 3Q. Are you able to share what that component is or if you've cycled past um, that uh, shortage and, and what has been your experience so far here in 4Q in the first, you know, five weeks of, of the quarter, et cetera, maybe with regards to the, the second uh, shift too? Thanks. Ryan, we've we've talked about before just the the improvement we're seeing broadly within the supply chain, uh, in particular relative to the the first half of this year, which you know, we've spent some time talking about just just how challenging that was. Uh, so that that improvement we're, we're absolutely seeing and continue to see. But you know, with with a vehicle that has hundreds of suppliers um, and thousands of components coming from the suppliers, uh, it only takes one part from one supplier uh, to stop the line and is. is Claire referenced earlier, we, we, we have, uh, we had five days we lost already this quarter, uh, because of a single component supply shortage. Now that component, um, and the supplier of that component is, is something we spent a lot of time working really closely with them to avoid having this happen again and have built, uh, robust, uh, contingencies to manage this risk going forward. Um, and we, we do believe that there's going to continue to be challenges, certainly with supply chain, but we do believe with this specific instance that we've settled it um, to allow us to continue to, to ramping uh, without those types of interruptions. Okay, very helpful. Thank you. And then just lastly, I think last quarter you talked about, um, you know, preserving free cash outlook by deferring some CapEx spending uh, that was discretionary into next year. Uh, now with the push out of the R2 a bit, uh, how are you thinking about that? Are, are you maybe looking to uh, trim uh, capital expenditures uh, next year relative to what might have otherwise been the plan? Roland, as you heard, we, we both took down our guidance from a CapEx perspective uh, this year. And so part of that is a shift into next year. And then next year does have some you know, incremental benefit uh, in that we're not spending at the same capacity towards the, the plant uh, build-out in Georgia. But in aggregate, as, as I mentioned, uh, we still expect to be in that low $2 billion area, uh, even with those movements. Okay, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. I would now like to turn the call back over to RJ for closing remarks. Thanks, everybody, for joining the call. It was, it was uh, great to have such a broad spectrum of questions here today. You know, just to reiterate some of the, the points Claire and I both made throughout the call, we're, we're, we're really looking forward to the continued ramp of our, of our production line. The impact this has uh, not only on the economics of our business, but uh, very importantly on, on ensuring we deliver to customers, uh, excited customers that uh, you know, help us to bring, uh, bring, them our, bring them their vehicles, get them, get them in their R1T, their R1S as soon as possible. That's, that's a critical focus for us. And as we look out uh, into 2023, the continued ramp um, and continued growth in deliveries is, is our core, core focus. Um, and with that, of course, driving efficiency into and across the business, uh, not just on, on our cost of goods sold, but across our operating expenses, as well as how we deploy capital from a CapEx point of view. So with that, um, thank you, everybody, for joining, uh, and we look forward to, to our next earnings call.
Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.